This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Cheers. Gentlemen, cheers. To the Queen. No, I hate the aristocracy, man. Hello listeners and welcome to the Enemy Within podcast. My name is Pete Romand and I am joined by my co-host James Foley. James, how are you doing today? I'm very well, Pete. I'm going to be joined by a special guest who is going to be with me throughout the duration of the podcast. And the special guest explains why we've been away for several weeks. It's my wee baby, Bella. And she is asleep right now, but I think that maybe Bella will be joining us to give her input later in the podcast, no doubt, at some point. Oh, she will express her views. Yeah, she will express her views. But that's right. That's why we've been away for a few weeks. James, you've become a dad. How is fatherhood treating you? To be honest, I'm pretty much thinking it's going to be plain sailing for the next 21 years. It seems like it's pretty easy. I think I've got this sorted. Anyone who wants to give me advice, I've had plenty of it and all of it conflicts with one another but I think I'm doing okay she seems to be pretty calm she seems like she's pretty happy she will change her mind about that maybe in five minutes but we'll see you look like you're doing great James she's fast asleep she looks peaceful I'm sure it's not like that all the time though she does tend to feed at night she's like a gremlin is that how gremlins work (laughs) but yeah so I mean you look really happy though James clearly life's good at the moment what are your main takeaways? Because here's the thing. Lots of people have been giving you advice. Soon you're the one that gets to give the advice. I just say reject the antinatalist current politics. Embrace having children. It doesn't mean to say that you have to embrace tradition. It just means to say that you have an investment in the future. I start to care a little bit more about all the dumb things that young people are saying because I now have an investment in what these idiots are up to, rather than just become a sort of angry old codger as I was heading towards, I actually start to think, I wonder what these young people are listening to nowadays. Because I've thought music was pretty much shit for the last 15 years, but now I'm going to have to tune in a little bit more attentively to all the cultural trends of the day and hope that by some miracle, things on a cultural and a political and an economic front are going to get better because now I have an investment. And I assumed, James, that you were talking about the environmental level. I did not expect you to go into a rant about music there. Oh, I mean, yeah, the environmental level as well, yeah. But mostly you've gone through a period of cultural decline. Yes, be anxious about the planet, recycle, do your thing, right, whatever. But mostly we've just got to sort out whatever the hell has happened to music over the last 15 years. So, James, Bella's birth has coincided with a momentous event in British politics. And one thing, perhaps, that you haven't taken into your stride quite as easily is the mass hysteria that seems to have descended on Britain. (laughs) I, luckily, have managed to avoid most of it, but you have been stuck in what looks like a country going through a period of some sort of... Freudian mass hysteria. I mean, it's funny, right? Do you remember when David Cameron said, we don't do flags on the lawn? We British people, we think the people in America are all wounds because they put the flag on the lawn, they put the flag in the classroom, they put the flag on pretty much everything, right? So we think that they're all mental and they're all bamboozled by some sort of nationalism. And we think that about a lot of other countries, to be honest, and we think that we are uniquely psychologically disinclined towards nationalism and hysteria. We've got to step up our lip. And generally speaking, we're a more 
rational type of person who doesn't fall for that kind of nonsense. <laughs> then this comes along and you see that people are utterly deranged. Very often, I think, you get caught into this trap, which right-wing people are quite adept at pulling you into, of thinking that it's only people on the left who are entirely deranged and we're going about cancelling people and who are like obsessively ideological. Something like this is actually quite useful in reminding you that the originators of cancel culture at its worst are, of course, the right wing. They can be incredibly authoritarian, that they can be incredibly stupid and unwilling to listen or to brook any type of the same. So in a way, it's been reassuring. It's reassured me that although many people on the left can be slightly bamboozlingly weird, they're not as weird as the right wing. So basically, we're all nuts, but the right wing most of all. Well, I, whether they are most of all or not, they are equally as weird as many people on the liberal side of politics, shall we say. Okay, what are your highlights? What are the sort of top three weirdest moments that you've seen? I mean, obviously, like, the full range of sex shops, dildo merchandisers, all sorts of porn sites and all sorts of other things, declaring their silence and solidarity with the Queen. I mean, it's almost as weird as Sinn Féin signing up for all of the hysteria alongside the Scottish Nationalists and the Labour Party and most of the left wing, quite frankly, in society. Wait, Sinn Féin did? Sinn Féin were among the most grovelling. No way. Yeah, because they had to relate to the whole moment and talk about it as being some sort of magnificent peacemaker. It is possible just to say nothing or very little, but everyone just had to go out of their way in the groveling. It just seemed like it would never be enough. There was no amount of superlatives that would be inappropriate to this particular moment. I thought amongst liberals that republicanism was a perfectly legitimate ideological disposition. Traditionally, liberals have tended to want democracy over aristocratic rule. And yet, it seems like republicanism has been almost outlawed in the UK. Weren't there demonstrators that got arrested just for holding up placards saying that they didn't like the royal family? Yeah, I mean, if you saw that in Russia or North Korea or something like that, obviously we know what everyone would be saying, right? I think even the right wing knows that was a bit bloody mental. But to be honest, I think the police were just taken in with all of the hysteria of the moment. Republicanism is very often taken to be this sort of sad liberal corner of guardian reading society. But of course, because precisely republicanism is not really a dissident movement with a mass base in British society, because it's just corners of little intellectuals debating what a future British constitution might be and so on and so forth. What tends to happen is that as soon as any real moment of social change comes up, elements of republicanism in society tend to vanish. Now, of course, there are more vigorous republican traditions in and around pockets of British, Scottish, English society. But I think, I mean, to be absolutely frank about it, those pockets do tend to exist in particular immigrant communities, such as my own, who are historically Irish and so on and so forth, rather than being a generalised part of the mood and the culture of society. In terms of those overt displays of republicanism that you mentioned, there's really only two that I can think of, do correct me if I'm wrong, but there were the protesters who got arrested and there were Celtic fans at the last football game, who applauded through the minutes applause, chanting, what was it? If you hate the royal family, clap your hands. 
That was quite clever, right? I mean, you got to hand it to them. It was the best bit when you see all the people who are trying to be the social cues by clapping along and the opposition team and so on, and you can absolutely hear it resounding around the stadium. It's very funny to watch. So, James, yeah, why don't we take a step back from some of the surface-level phenomenon that's going on right now, that is to say the mass mourning and so on, and why don't we talk a little bit about the ideological role of the monarchy? So, for example, one of the best books I think ever written about the ideological role of the monarchy was The Enchanted Glass by Tom Nairn. First of all, listeners, I would thoroughly recommend you read the book. Nairn is, in my opinion one of the great modern Scottish Marxists, and he's a very funny writer, and he really does not like the monarchy at all. But a couple of the things that he argues is that contrary to this idea that we in Britain don't have a nationalism of our own, that uh, it is somehow banal, that as you said before, we're not the sort of people that have flags on our lawn. Uh, Just to be clear, that was David Cameron. David Cameron (laughs) did also uh, put his penis in a peg, so he's not someone you can always trust. You really have to take his opinions with a pinch of salt. You do. But in some respects, more than any other place, you can see the symbol of British nationalism, that is to say the monarchy, almost everywhere. On coins, on banknotes, uh, you know, on stamps, all the rest of it. The places that you forget it's even there. The argument that Nairn makes is that while there are lots of symbols that hold together the various nations of Britain... In Scotland, we have symbols that represent Scottishness from the sort of banal tartanry of shortbread and so on through to uh, historic stories of William Wallace and Robert the Bruce and so on. And the same can be said for Wales and also for England. What is there that holds together at a symbolic level Britishness? British nationalism and so on. Nairn's argument is that it's the monarchy that plays that function. It's a monarchy that plays that role. That it's really the only true symbol of Britishness. And he also argues that this has a secondary function, which is to remove the idea of popular sovereignty from the idea of Britishness. And that this has a massive demobilising role. Well, what does that mean? An example of this is if someone signs up to join the military, they don't swear an oath of allegiance to the people. They don't swear their allegiance to Britain. They swear an oath of allegiance to the crown, to the queen. And this ultimately removes the concept of popular sovereignty from British democracy in a certain fundamental way. What do you make of that? Well, what else does hold Britain together? It's not a very clearly defined ethnic identity in the sense that there are three stroke four national communities embodied within it that all have their sense of separateness, which has only grown in recent times. You had the empire, of course, which was the fundamental thing that tied so much of it together. That went, and then you had two kind of things that replaced it, which is a sort of Churchill myth of having won the Second World War, plus the welfare state. As time has gone on, both of those things have receded for different reasons. The monarchy has, in part, I think, it's a symbol of what ties together a quite irrational idea of a national community. What you also have to remember is that the monarchy is kind of symbolic also of the way that quite reactionary and backward British institutions have modernised to take account of Americanized consumer capitalism. While on the one hand it's a symbol of tradition, it's also the tackiest and most tourist-driven, most consumerist 
And in many ways, as Neon himself says, the most bourgeois of British institutions, bourgeois in the sort of snobbishly cultural sense, it's it's a paradoxical thing. And certainly, you can't imagine much of a sense of Britishness without it. Attempts to refound Britishness on any other level have been consistent failures. It might be worth bringing in former Tory MP David Willits at this point, now in the House of Lords. But he once said, when talking about what Britain is, Great Britain provides the political institutions which link these two nations, Scotland and England, in above all an outward-looking endeavour of trade and conquest. It is the British Army, the British Empire and the British Pound. Now, I think this is interesting, and I was reminded of this, because when you take those three things, the British pound, not something that people are quite as proud of right now. Scottish nationalists still really like it, by which I mean the SAP's leadership. The British army, I take this part of Willett's quote to refer to the Atlanticist nature of British nationalism. That is to say that much is made of the special relationship between the US and Britain. But in reality, what that's really meant over the last several decades is not so much a special relationship as the fact that Britain has played a role as the key ally of the United States in imposing US foreign policy abroad. It plays, in many respects, a similar role to that of the State of Israel, which acts as an aircraft carrier for American geopolitical interests in the Middle East, and Britain has tended to carry the can in Europe. Since Brexit, the role of Britain in Europe is diminished. It's tended to be the case that Britain has spent more on the military and so on relative to other countries. It's taken a disproportionate role in NATO peacekeeping, quote-unquote peacekeeping missions, and so on. And it no longer necessarily plays that role. So of the three things that Willits talks about, the pound, the role of the British military, those two have diminished to an extent. And the third is the British Empire. Now, Britain no longer really has an empire, except insofar as it retains an informal empire. But I think the key here is that the crown is the symbolic head of the former British Empire. And really, it's the last thing out of the three that is left. There's not much more to British identity. In some ways, what Cameron says is symptomatic of the fact that there's very few things that British people can feel patriotic about. But then, obviously, the last gasp of insane British nationalism, quite frankly, is centred upon displays of hysteria around the monarchy. So it is like the last one standing. It is what substitutes for a real dialogue about politics. The really terrible thing about the monarchy isn't just that it's a bunch of weirdos that Prince Andrew is a pedophile and all these other things, right? Bad enough. But the real thing about it is that we abnegate our own political responsibilities as a political community to a circus. And that's what's particularly distressing to me about the whole thing. Rather than the fact that it symbolizes colonialism, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, I can see why people across the world might think that, but I actually don't think that is really what's going through the heads of ordinary, normal, normie British people who happen to sympathise with the Queen or to be a bit monarchist or whatever. I get that there are reasons why people are inclined towards this sort of soft sympathy for the monarchy, right? Partly because she seems like she's not a nice old woman necessarily, but just a kind of old woman that's into horses and corgis and all these other things, and kind of blandly inoffensive and so on. Secondly, I think people have rightly pointed out 
a nostalgia for the time that the Queen first came about, for the time when we had an illusion, at least, of prosperity and rising opportunities and new services becoming available, rather than this perpetual decline or walked into now. So I think that's an understandable type of nostalgia, if not a healthy one, necessarily. And lastly, I think people fucking hate politicians. And the idea of an elected head of state, I mean, at one stage, it could have been Tony Blair, the president of the UK or whatever, right? And of course, that fills a lot of people with horror. But that's precisely, I think, why you need to properly define what republicanism is, because... Is it just about having an elected head of state rather than one that's inherited it by birth? I don't think that's republicanism, at least in the form that I would subscribe to. I mean, I think part of the thing is the fact that you have an utterly reprehensible elected leader is part of what illustrates what republicanism should be about, which is self-rule and the responsibility that you have to be outraged by the political classes. What we tend to do with our monarchy is to say, rather than really express how angry we are with the political class, with the feelings of them and so on and so forth, essentially we're going to delegate what should be a political function to essentially a circus. And I get why a circus is more fun, but frankly, if we're going to get anywhere, we have to have some trust in processes of democracy and our capacity for self-rule at some stage, or else really we are in that mode of bread and circuses. But anyway, look, those are the reasons I think why people are understandably attracted to this whole spectacle. And that's fair enough. But I also think while all of them are understandable, it doesn't mean that they're not deeply unhealthy and illustrative of a disturbed national psyche. One of the bits of this whole thing that I found fairly amusing. Among the people invited to funeral, there were some interesting characters. and Some of them yeah. got interviewed by the BBC. In fact, there was one Crown Prince Pavlos of Greece that got interviewed by the BBC, introduced as the Crown Prince of Greece, which any viewers in Greece might have found a little bit strange, given that in 1974, the Greek people voted in a referendum to abolish the monarchy and become a republic. Nevertheless, the BBC introduced him as a Greek royal, and... He was joined at the funeral by some other interesting figures. The uh, Archduke of Austria, which Austria is also a republic. The Tsar of Bulgaria. I didn't know we had Tsars living anymore. Bulgaria is also a republic, it's worth saying. The Prince of Venice, which obviously has become part of the Republic of Italy. And this was my favourite, the Prince of Yugoslavia. Yeah. We could have saved a lot of years, quite frankly, if we just allowed the Prince of Yugoslavia to just keep the whole thing together. And a lot of ethnic bloodshed in the 90s could have been solved with just some monarchism there. This has to be one of the shittest royal families ever. Yugoslavia only got, what, founded in 1919. And then it wasn't long after that that it became a communist republic. How long did this family rule exactly? And obviously Yugoslavia no longer exists. I'm wondering if the descendants of the Scottish royal line were invited. Oh, Bella doesn't like that. She was just trying to express an opinion on the question of the royal families of Europe. I mean, most of them, you know, have probably got that Habsburg chin and all that. You know? <laughs> Rather than being actual rulers and having any power and so on, all they get is the consequences, genetically speaking, of so much inbreeding that they can barely sit down. But I do wonder how 
and why they've managed to hold on to their titles. I can only assume it's because one day they hope that their the line will be restored, that suddenly the Crown Prince of Venice hopes that the world will return to a world of city-states rather than nation-states, will regress several hundred years, and he will once again ascend the throne of Venice. Yeah, I mean, neoliberals would like a world of city-states rather than nation-states anyway, so perhaps he's on to something, who knows? You know you can buy various titles, right, over the internet. My dad bought my mum some sort of ladyship title for a Christmas one year, so maybe it's like that. Maybe they auctioned it on eBay or something. <laughs> so you're telling me that I could become the Tsar of Bulgaria if I put in a high enough bid, maybe? Maybe something a bit smaller than Bulgaria. Yeah, I mean, there's bound to be some sort of wee republic if you get a name to it. Might be worth our time talking a little bit about what this means in terms of the cost of living crisis and the strikes. And I don't mean that just in a sort of boringly Marxist back to the economic issues type of way. But I think it does actually raise some interesting dilemmas within the theory and the practice of the left here. Because while you have had sporadic protests, Celtic fans, randoms on the street, whatever, Basically, what happened is you had a complete institutional shutdown of any dissent within society. The British ruling class, the British establishment, when they want to move, they just steamroll or everything aside. Labour gets in behind it, the SNP, even ALBA, they all get in behind it, right? And the opposition just looks entirely fucking pitiful. And we've gone from a position where people on the left we're excited about this mass outbreak of strike action and so on around the cost of living crisis. And in some ways it was an exciting thing, in some ways it's a desperate thing of trying to claw back some of the things we've lost over the last period, etc, etc. One of the worst aspects of the death of the Queen has been the fact that it's just completely changed the national conversation. Prior to this, the debate was entirely about the cost of living crisis going into a really hard winter for so many people. And the fact that Boris Johnson was leaving in disgrace, Liz Truss was coming in as a new prime minister, and it looked like she was going to have a really hard time coming in as prime minister. Yeah, because she's got an insane because, economic agenda. Absolutely. That is going to make things far worse. And yet, and in an actual fact, she's had the easiest possible ride coming in as a new prime minister because she's got to play the role of the prime ministerial grandee, speaking at the funeral, conducting national mourning and all the rest of it. I don't doubt, though, that it is only a matter of time before we get back to the cost of living crisis being the main issue that we are all talking about. The mass hysteria around the death of the Queen cannot go on for too long. It's only so long that it can cohere sentiment around mourning and national unity. Up to a point, I agree with you, right? But the working class movement in this country, and I which mean the organised activities of the trade unions and so on, it had such a difficult time building any momentum around itself over a period of time. In terms of the last economic crisis that we had and the austerity aftermath and so on, it was like one day of concerted public sector action on pensions. And that was really about it. That was the opposition that they were actually able to mobilise in any concerted fashion. So the fact that they were able to get some momentum, nothing on the 70s or the 80s, right? But some momentum in this last period. 
I think was symbolic. I think the mistake, though, that people on the left got into is because they'd had so many bruising political defeats, particularly for what the trendy young hipster left were into with Corbynism and so on and so forth, they kind of got into a mood of like, don't do politics, just focus on the economic stuff, the anti-politics of it all. I guess this has been a sort of very rude reminder of the fact that you can't just build at your local branch level and all that sort of stuff without having a political backbone. You've got to build political institutions as well, cultural institutions as well. Otherwise, moments like this come along and you just get steamrolled out of the way. I don't think Mick Lynch and that could have done anything different, like, by the way. It's very easy for people to say, oh, they've sold out the strike. Bureaucracies always sell out the strike, et cetera, et cetera. I get that up to a point, right? But there are MT workers who wanted to work for free in order to take people to the Queen's funeral, et cetera, et cetera. It's a hard thing to do, and I don't think they had a lot of options. It's not the job of a trade union bureaucracy or of trade unions generally to fight these big political issues. In relation to attitudes to the strikes, I understand what you're saying about the left, but I think that the much more important factor around the strikes is the extent to which they garnered support amongst ordinary people that aren't particularly involved in politics, but who identified with the goals of rail workers, people in the communications industry, call centre workers and so on, because the CWU were also going to go out on strike or sections of the CWU. And the point is that lots of people identified with the fact that they were taking action and supported strikes. This is pretty anecdotal, but the number of searches in the UK for what is a union and how to join a union and that sort of thing skyrocketed after Mick Lynch got some time on TV to put across the case for the RMT. And of course, you're right, this absolutely killed that momentum. I totally agree. And I think that is one of the worst aspects of what's happened. I'm hopeful that as we get back to some sense of normality, that working class militancy will return. And I do think that economic forces are pushing people in that direction. I do also think lots of people on the left were very upset at the trade union leaders for calling off strikes. I'm not. I think that it was probably tactically quite astute. Don't get me wrong, I don't want action to be ended. But at the end of the day, when you're going out and taking an action and you're getting to talk about it in the media and so on, you want to be able to talk about why you're taking the action. If the RMT continued to strike, the conversation would have been, why are you striking today of all days? And it becomes about striking during moment of national mourning. And the media and the right would be able to portray them as far-left communists and so on who have no respect for anyone else. I think it's understandable under those circumstances. Look, this would be completely different if these were old-fashioned all-out strikes. If it was the case that workers had been out on strike for weeks and for this reason they were forced to go back to work, that would be an absolute killer. But what we're really talking about are set-piece actions that last a few days. And yes, they do have an economic impact, but it's not the case that they're going to have such a huge economic impact on capitalists, on employers, on the government, that they're going to be able to really force through demands. The battle of public opinion does really matter in this situation, and the simple reality is that there are a lot of people out there who probably supported the strikes, but would also have been really pissed off if the strikes had continued immediately after the Queen had died. What you really need in this situation is a strong rank-and-file movement of trade unionists. If you're going to stop that happening, if you want the strikes to continue, 
you need a, some sort of rank and file movement that can put pressure on the trade union bureaucracy to say, no, we want to continue the action and so on. That would be the only way it could ever happen because trade union leaders are always going to act like this. I agree with elements of that, but I don't think I would frame it quite that way, to be honest. To me, it's not so much about a question of astute media management and all these other things are being tactically astute even. In some ways, it's not a tactically astute thing to do. The problem is that they didn't really have an alternative because the surrounding institutional environment and media environment and cultural environment precluded it. Like, the smart tactical thing in some ways to do is to cause the maximum amount of disruption as you can as a trade union. And the fact that it would be going on at a time like that would be theoretically in some ways the best. But they don't have an option of really doing that because there's nobody to fight the bat on behalf of the left when it comes to those big political questions. Ultimately, most of the leaders of the left go missing at big times like that and completely the backbones turn to jelly. But you said yourself, yeah. but you said yourself that, for example, there's some real workers that talked about working for free on that Absolutely. day in order to be able yeah, to take more. Yeah, to yeah, the I mean, I'm clear about this, right? And I said it right at the beginning. They didn't have an option because the institutional framework to actually hold a serious ideological political movement of the left to account doesn't exist. What the left has in place of real leadership and real institutions and so on is pop-up social media intellectuals like Owen Jones, who are frankly useless at times like that. Plus, they have people like Mick Lynch, right, who has come to substitute for real political leadership in this country. Now, Mick Lynch is great. He's got good politics. He's a Connollyite socialist without it being this sort of annoyingly in-your-face thing that puts people off, like when it's pretentious, the way that a lot of people express their Marxism in public. So Mick Lynch is great. The problem is Mick Lynch is a trade union leader. And I'm not saying the trade union leaders inherently do this and they're inherently bureaucratic and they're inherently evil and they're inherently to the right of the members because none of that's true. And all of that is based on a sort of backwards industrial sociology of the 1960s and 70s. What I'm saying is he has to represent his members and his members don't want to get slaughtered and many of them are sympathetic and it's not his job to step in, socially speaking, for the complete absence of a viable left in society. Right now, let's take a break. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contour.substack.com and find great articles and more at contour.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash contourscot. So, James, back to the monarchy then. What can we expect from our future King Charles III, is it? Put it this way, there have been some liberal commentators who have talked about how he's going to be a progressive king because, for example, he really cares about the environment. So perhaps, even though he's overstretching his remit a little bit, it'll be nice that in his meetings with Liz Truss, he might mention that fracking's not such a good idea. 
Can you see this from our future sovereign, James? The only good thing politically about Charles, quite frankly, is that he doesn't like Prince Andrew. Look, there might be particular things that you agree with Charles about, and clearly he's more intellectual and more likely to have opinions on things than his mother was. All of that's bad. Look, it doesn't even matter if he's right about a political issue. There's a broader point of principle here, right, that he's not someone that can ever be held accountable at any level, and he shouldn't be involved with politics. The whole institution is quite frankly, built on the idea that he won't have any role in politics, which is why Queen Elizabeth was in some ways quite a successful monarch because she cared about horses and corgis rather than politics and therefore was a successful embodiment of the thoughtlessness of what the monarchy is supposed to represent. Once you start getting someone that's middle-brow and has a few ideas because he's read a couple of books about a couple of things, that's actually quite worrying and bad for democracy. Yes, of course, we're all meant to see eco-socialism, the modern green movement is very much all the left, blah, 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 blah. It's also true that historically a lot of environmentalism has been exceptionally right-wing and very often there can be overlaps between what exceptionally right-wing environmentalists say and what eco-socialists or whatever say. Clearly what he is, he's an elitist reactionary who likes nature. Look, I mean... Reactionaries have always liked nature. Hasn't people heard of fucking Wagner and Heidegger or whatever? Do you know what I mean? This is not new. This is not particularly interesting, except to say that like all aristocrats in the world, he has a sort of idea that he has an affinity for nature, which tends to be, of course, a very much imagined idea of what nature is. Well, it's basically him strolling around some crown-owned forests and being like, ah, this is very nice. The sort of hunting estate idea of what nature is. People have been cleared off that land in order that deer can prance about it for aristocrats to hunt. If you want to call that environmentalism, fair enough. I- I'm not for it. Like, I'm, I personally, I would rather have a completely empty-headed monarch. I don't want them having political opinions. I think the idea of Harry the woke monarch or whatever is appalling. And anyone who thinks that they're going to get their wokeness through to the population via monarchical principles, frankly, is an ideological enemy. You're saying that Meghan Markle is not our future leader. I'm saying that the instincts that people have to dislike Meghan Markle are not entirely unhealthy. So, James, you mentioned one thing that I thought was interesting that I didn't really know about. You said Charles hates Andrew. Now, is this just a recent thing because Andrew's a pedo? Or... Is this like a long-standing feud? I don't really follow the royal gossip, but I did see a thing that's an excerpt from a new book. I think a new book about Camilla or something that's come out. You can kind of see why. Obviously, Charles is a kind of like weird, odd-looking guy. Probably a bit nerdy, likes reading his reactionary books about nature and doing his own thing. Whereas Prince Andrew always styled himself, I think he was the Queen's favourite, he styled himself as a sort of handsome military party man. Going out at a nightclub and never sweated. Uh, <laughs> never once. So, like, he obviously thinks of himself as the sort of, like, manly, macho, man about town. Even saying that sounds exceptionally sinister, given what we know about his behaviour. But I think that's the basic root of it. It's not just that he's a paedophile and that's embarrassing to the reputation of this hallowed institution. I think it's probably more a sort of sense of bitterness and jealousy that he's a sort of more vigorous type of meal, albeit with some of the horrific consequences that has entailed. Yes, vigorous is not the first word I would use to describe Andrew. Vigorous is a, is a, is a terrible and awkward euphemism, but what is clearly a 
sordid life that that man has led. I think we're pretty much at the end, James. Well, should we leave it there? Sure. I shall speak to you again next week. And hopefully we'll be joined by Bella as well, who made her opinions known at certain points throughout the recording today. Bella was opposed to the idea of a Scottish monarchy. 